Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Genesis 28 through 33. So a quick overview of what we're going to do. I remind you that at the end of last podcast, Esau is furious with Jacob because he believes he's stolen his birthright and his blessing. So Rebecca is worried about his safety. So Rebecca convinces Isaac to send him back to the old country to find a wife. So chapter 28 begins with Isaac sending Jacob out to go find a wife back in the old country, kind of like Abraham's servant did for him. And then on the way, Jacob has a tremendous temple experience in Bethel. Yeah, and then in 29, Jacob meets Rachel at a well, and then he approaches Laban and says, I want to marry Rachel, and there's this trickery going on. So just like Jacob tricked his father to get the blessing, he's going to be tricked in the marriage experience. And so he's going to marry Rachel and Leah, and then there's this tension between them as these two sisters have this rivalry for Jacob's attention. Then in chapter 30, that rivalry continues, and each one of the sisters kind of has a handmaid, and to kind of win the competition, so to speak, they say to Jacob, why don't you marry my handmaid? And so 11 of his sons will be born at this time period. And so we go through which son was born to which wife. And then at the end of chapter 30, Jacob prepares to leave. And he's been a servant for 20 years. And Laban has not been kind to him. And so Jacob is going to say, look, how about I take all the speckled animals And it just so happens that the vast majority of them are born speckled. So he kind of prepares to leave, and he gathers all that the Lord is now giving Jacob, and he's about to head out. And then he leaves, and then Laban chases him down and says, wait, you didn't say goodbye. And then there's this big tension between the two men, because Laban essentially says, hey, everything you have is mine. Then there's this strange passage in Genesis 31 where it talks about the household gods being taken, or the teraphim, and those were taken by Rachel. So we'll talk about that, but chapter 31 ends with this covenant. There's a covenant between Jacob and Laban, a covenant of peace, and they're eating bread. And then Jacob has an interesting experience in the 32nd chapter. So he's said goodbye, he's made his peace with Laban, but he knows he has to face his brother Esau. And the last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. So chapter 32, he prepares to reconcile with Esau, and he's brought a lot of possessions, and he's preparing gifts. And then on his way, as he's preparing to meet Esau, he has another divine experience which I'm sure some translator didn't really know how to write, and so he describes it as this physical wrestle where his his joint gets thrown out of socket, and he's wounded, and he asks for a blessing. But we're going to really talk about that, and we're going to see the Book of Mormon version of that and probably say that this was the divine wrestle with God in which Jacob ends up with a blessing. So again, he has a divine experience with deity as he prepares to go back and face Esau. Then in chapter 32, Mike, we're going to end with the image of the embrace. Esau and Jacob are going to embrace, 
and it's this beautiful passage. And then there's this settling at the end of the 33rd chapter in this place called Shechem, which is in Israel. It's in what's known today as modern-day Nablus. It's this place at the base of two hills. And those two hills are going to have a big significance with Moses when we get into the text of Deuteronomy. And so that's kind of a brief overview of the chapters, what we're going to talk about. So, Mike, let me give you my overall lesson for these chapters. Let's do this up front, and then we'll jump into the individual chapters and see the details. The beauty of the Old Testament is it allows us to see the covenant in different scenarios. For example, in Egypt and in Babylon, we're going to see the covenant in bondage. So all of us can see how to keep the covenant when we're oppressed, when some force is pushing us down, beating us up, so to speak. How do you keep the covenant in bondage? And the Old Testament is going to address that. In the desert, we're going to see how to keep the covenant in need, in want, when in scarcity, when you lack, when you need help. How do you keep the covenant in the desert? And we're going to get to see that in a beautiful way. In the return to Jerusalem and the establishment of Canaan, we're going to see how do you keep the covenant when so many people around you don't, when the nations around you don't keep the covenant. And so we get to see the covenant in so many scenarios. But I think it's significant that we begin with how to keep the covenant in the family. How do you keep the covenant in the small little community around you, in the innermost circles? So we talked about the fact that the Abrahamic covenant is a promise to take the gospel to the world and to go influence the world. But the message of Genesis seems to be you can't influence the world until you have reconciled within your own family. You have to focus on your family before you go out and try and save the world. And so there's a lot of contention in these chapters. There's contention among Jacob's wives. There's a little bit of jealousy. There's some competition. And then we have tension. Jacob has tension with Laban. And he needs to reconcile that. He needs to find peace with his father-in-law. Jacob needs to find peace with his brother. There's tension with his brother. So long before he can be patriarch Jacob, long before he can be Israel and go save the world, Jacob has to focus on his family first and foremost. And so it's not a coincidence that the church has said things like, the greatest work you'll do will be within the walls of your own home, or no other success compensates for failure in the home. To that end, I would turn all of your attention to section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the first presidency consists of Joseph Smith, first counselor Sidney Rigdon, and second counselor Frederick G. Williams, and there's also a presiding bishop by the name of Newell K. Whitney. Now, the setting here in section 93 is that everyone comes into the world innocent. Verse 38, every spirit of man is innocent in the beginning. And God, having redeemed man from the fall, men became innocent in their infant state. And then he says in 39, the wicked one comes and takes away light and truth through disobedience and because of the traditions of the fathers. Therefore, verse 40, I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. Now he speaks to the second counselor in the first presidency, and he rebukes him, verse 42, for not teaching his children light and truth. 
In other words, it's not what you've done in your calling in the church that I'm focusing on right now. It's what you haven't done in your home, which would suggest that first we focus on the innermost circles of our homes, our families, our marriages, our relationships with our children, and then maybe we extend that out to brothers like Esau, fathers-in-law like Laban, and we work on family relationships before we go and do second counsel in the first presidency type things. Notice starting in verse 44, the Lord rebukes Sidney Rigdon. Sidney, you haven't kept the commandments concerning your children, therefore first set in order thy house. That word first fascinates me. As if to say, look, I need you to be a really good first counselor. I need you to represent me well to the world. But first, fix what's going on in your home. Reconcile with estranged family members. Don't let your children fight and quarrel. So, Now watch what the Lord does next is, starting in verse 45, he now has a message for Joseph, the president of the church. And verse 48, he says, your family needs repent and forsake some things. Now, to make sure we don't miss the point, he says in verse 49, what I say unto one, I say unto all. Therefore, the message seems to be, especially if you look at the Old Testament, long before you focus on taking the gospel to the world— Fix the contentions within the smallest circles first. And so we've got one more, starting in verse 50. He now has something to say to the presiding bishop of the church. And he says that Newell K. Whitney in verse 50 needs to be chastened and set in order his family. And then this phrase, see that you are more diligent and concerned at home. May I suggest that the real measure of a man is what he does in his home. Throughout my life, I have become acquainted with men who have held significant positions in the church. And yet, I have realized that some of them have been very cruel to their wives, very unkind and demeaning to their wives. And it struck me that how can you be successful as a leader in the church if you're not being kind to the people in the innermost circle of your life, your spouse, your children? You know what's interesting, Bryce, is President Hinckley's talked about this. And so to me, I'm thinking this may be a problem even still. This may be an invitation for us to consider how we treat people in our inner circle. Yeah. And so I leave this thought with a marvelous insight quoted by H. Burke Peterson in the November Enzyme. We'll put this in the show notes. But he's quoting W.C. Bran, who said something that just has had a tremendous influence in my life. He said, the place to take the true measure of a man is not in the darkest place or in the amen corner nor the cornfield, but by his own fireside. There he lays aside his mask, and you may learn whether he is an imp or an angel, cur or king, hero or humbug. I care not what the world says of him, whether it crowns him boss or pelts him with bad eggs. I care not a copper what his reputation or his religion may be. 
If his babies dread his homecoming and his better half swallows her heart every time she has to ask him for a $5 bill, he is a fraud of the first water. And even though he prays night and morning until he is black in the face, but if his children rush to the front door to meet him, and love's sunshine illuminates the face of his wife every time she hears his footfall, you can take it for granted that he is pure, for his home is a heaven. I can forgive much in that fellow mortal who would rather make men swear than women weep, who would rather have the hate of the whole world than the contempt of his wife, who would rather call anger to the eyes of a king than fear to the face of a child. End quote. That is the focus of the covenant. Don't worry so much about fulfilling the covenant over in other nations until you apply the gospel and the covenant in the innermost circles of your life and reconcile. Reconcile with your father-in-law Laban. Reconcile with your angry brother Esau. Reconcile the contention that's going on in the walls of your home. And then you can go into Egypt and out to Babylon. And then you can deal with the nations around you and how to take the gospel to them. Family first. And that's, I think, the overall message of this week, Mike, as we talk about Jacob and his wrestle with his brother, his father-in-law, and the contention with his wives. I like that. And I also see this as a reflection of the geopolitical situation between Israel and Judah. We'll talk about this when we get to Kings, but know that there's a monarchy, Saul and then David and then Solomon, and everything's awesome. Israel's united. All 12 tribes are this confederation of 12 tribes that get along. I sometimes think of this as the colonies of the United States of America, how everything was great. And then in America, we had this huge rift between North and South, and the rift in the text of the Hebrew Bible isn't necessarily about the same things, but they have a North and South rift. And so some scholars look at this and say, these stories are also a reflection of the geopolitical situation in the ninth and eighth centuries. And then as the Israelites were reflecting back on their time period in their history, these stories had more relevance because the overarching view is that they wanted to have an embrace. They wanted to put North and South together and fix the kingdom. And then I like to look at this another way, cosmically. The Lord's going to bring the 10 tribes back. We're gathering Israel, and then Enoch's going to come back, and we're going to have that embrace and fall upon each other's necks and kiss each other. And so this is a beautiful image, both of the political situation that the Israelites had, but also the spiritual condition of Israel. And it's also our family. And then if you relax your eyes a little bit and you think about the embrace and you think about some of the specifics, we're going to see some of this in this podcast and then in future ones when we get to the Joseph narrative. And there's a lot of temple symbolism happening here where we come to the presence of God and there's an embrace of the family. So this really is some good stuff, isn't yeah. it? And hearing you talk about that, Mike, reminds me of a Book of Mormon image. Do you remember in the war chapters, the very beginning of the war chapters, where Moroni has them so prepared, and when the Lamanites first attack, the Lamanites get slaughtered, and the Nephites don't lose a single person. So where in the world are the Lamanites ever going to have success 
until the Nephites begin to contend with each other and the kingmen show up and take issue with the leaders. And it's almost as if the Book of Mormon is saying, sometimes we forget that the enemy is out there trying to destroy us and we think the enemy is within our own home. When we treat family like the enemy, we open the door to the real enemy who's posing a real threat to our safety, and he comes in and destroys us. And I think there's a great lesson there in the Book of Mormon that applies to all of this. We have a legitimate enemy who's trying to destroy us. And the moment we think that we are each other's enemies, that's when the real enemy gains power and comes in and destroys us. So let's not give power to the real enemy to destroy us. That's good. Let's jump into 28. So if we go to chapter 28 of Genesis, we have verse one where Isaac calls Jacob and basically says, don't marry anybody from Canaan. So he sends him verse 10 to Haran. And when he does, now Jacob's going to have this vision in a dream state. Verse 11 talks about him lying down to sleep. And verse 12 says, he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on the earth. Now I want to just stop right there and just say, it's probably not a ladder, but what we think it is, is a series of steps. It's probably what's called a sulam. So we put this for you in the slides. I love this image. It's a really good image of Jacob sleeping and his head's on a rock and he sees the sulam that's set up towards the earth. That's the Hebrew, how it's played out. But he's seeing a divine being. In fact, we read that it's the Lord. And the image I want to put in your mind is that in the movie Testaments, there's this scene where the Savior comes to the Nephites and he's slowly descending down these steps. And all the Nephites are seeing the Son of God. They're seeing the Savior in the flesh. And that's kind of in my mind what I see when I see this this sulam, or this, as the English King James translators translated this, this is a word that only appears one time. They translate it as ladder. So the sulam is descending down. Verse 13 says, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac, and the land whereon thou liest. To thee will I give it and to thy seed. And so we have once again, the Abrahamic covenant, the land and the seed and the blessing. And remember, we talked about this with the Abraham material. Abraham talks about the priesthood, but in the Old Testament, we talk about the land and the seed. And Bryce, I think the priesthood was part of this, but I think this was taken out. We don't read about that. And yeah. so... But it is fascinating to see the repetition and what isn't taken out. Do you remember back in chapter 12 of Genesis where the Lord says to Abraham, now this is in Genesis, that through thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That got repeated in chapter 26 to Isaac. Isaac is told in chapter 26, verse 4, through thee all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now we get to Jacob in chapter 28, verse 14, where it says, In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, even though the Old Testament has lost the priesthood and the temple and the covenants and the sealing power, the overall picture is clearly there, that Israel is supposed to bless families and make them united so that eternally they can stay united forever. Yeah. And so all three patriarchs were told that you've got to bless the families of the earth. And so I would remind everyone, the whole purpose of temples is to unify families for all eternity. We've got to add that piece to this covenant. We got it. We got to add that. 
And I also like verse 15, where the Lord says, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. There's the blessing of the covenant. I love that. And so he tells him that, and then in the 16th verse, he wakes up, and then he says, this is the gate of heaven. I love that title of a temple. I I think as you approach a temple, you should kind of see this image, the steps. I am walking into a building that will give me access to the steps that go up to heaven. And at the top of that is Heavenly Father. I love that title, that it's a gate. I also love that he concludes in verse 17, surely this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's a beautiful description of what a temple is, Mike. It is a gate of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean I can't pray in my home. I can pray in my shower. I can pray at work. I can pray in my car. But there is something about the temple that opens the channel more readily up to heaven and that angels are descending and ascending and trying to connect with me in that gate. Now, Jacob's going to make an interesting statement, and I just want to say, I think this is a little bit ambiguous. So he says in verse 17, how dreadful is this place? And that's coming from the word yare. And the word as it's conjugated in the text is Nora, what it's coming from Yare, and Yare, the Hebrew root of that word, can mean dreadful. I just want to call that out. It can be to be afraid, but it can also mean to stand in awe. Now, I think the reason why we're going with dreadful, I don't know, but I think the King James translators struggle with this because as they read it, I know they had to sit here and go, wait, this is a vision. Why is it this word? And then my take on this is, they probably read the Greek. And when they read the Greek, they didn't read thaumazo. That's the word that should be there in the Septuagint. The word that should be there in the Septuagint, in my opinion, is thaumazo, but the word in the Greek is phoboros. And phoboros is to be afraid. That's where we get the word phobias, phoboros. And so they see this in the Greek translation. And my guess is you know, because these are Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars, and they're trying to figure out these words, and they're going through the text, and a word that can be both, it can be thamazo, which is like the standing up, but it can also be fearful. They went with fearful, but my take on verse 17 is, I don't read it that way. I read it as, he sees God. Now, can that cause fear? I mean, how many times do angels come, and the first thing they say is, fear not. Or it's Isaiah when he said he sees God and says, woe is me. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing Heavenly Father and I'm so aware of my imperfections. Yeah. I'm so aware of my shortcomings. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and yet I've seen the Father. It's kind of that awe. It's both. I wish we had a footnote that kind of talked about that, opening the door for some ambiguity that it could be both. But he does vow a vow. There's this stone that he makes or a pillar and he calls it God's house. And so this is what is typically called Jacob's Ladder. And in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we look at this as a temple experience. Joseph Smith said this. He said, when we search the revelations of God and we study the prophecies, we see that God grants the world seers and prophets. These are individuals who saw the mysteries of godliness, and they saw the flood before it came. And then he references Jacob where he says, These prophets saw angels ascending and descending upon a ladder that reached from earth to heaven. And so Joseph Smith sees this as a temple experience, as does President Marion G. Romney, where he says, temples are to us what Bethel was to Jacob. Even more, 
they are also the gates of heaven for all of our unendowed kindred dead. And so those are some really good statements. And we put some other ones in the show notes from early church leaders that see this experience as a temple experience. And I want to point out, Mike, that before it was called Bethel, that place was called Luz, which if you speak Spanish, you know means light. Interesting. It's fascinating that Bethel was built on a place called light. So we have light and ladders to heaven and angels descending and God at the top reaching out and wanting to connect with us. And that's a beautiful image of modern day temples, the modern day house of the Lord. So get to Bethel, get to your own Bethel and reach up that ladder and connect with God. Yeah. I mean, Bethel, house of God. Um, Just to nerd out just a bit that Luz can also be a connection to a tree. So it can also mean an almond tree. Now, I'm just throwing this out there, but we see Nephi doing this. You've heard us talk about it. So there's some interesting layers happening there. So that's fun. So the 29th chapter, this is where Jacob is going to meet Rachel at a well. Now, there's this symbol I want to just pull on this thread a little bit where many of the matriarchs are associated with water. And they're associated with wells. We read this with Rebecca at the well. We're going to read it today with Rachel at the well. Or even Hagar when the water was spent in the bottle. Yes. We read this with Moses when he meets his wife at the well. And the association with water, the waters of the deep, the rechem or the womb, the blessings of the deep that lieth under that when we get to the Testament of Jacob, where he gives a blessing to Joseph about fertility, these things and these symbols are associated with temple and also the divine feminine. This idea that these matriarchs are associated with water, which is life. And the idea is that the water cosmically is coming up from underneath the Holy of Holies underneath the Ben Shatia, the foundation stone, and watering the whole world. And I think these cosmic symbols are being played out here with Rachel, this wonderful matriarch that Jacob's going to meet. Yeah. So I want to take everyone back to Moses chapter 6, what the Lord said to Adam and then to Enoch, inasmuch as you were born into the world by water and blood and the spirit, there's the woman, that's the mother. Yes. You came into this world by water and blood and spirit. Even so, you must be born again into the kingdom of heaven by water and of spirit and be cleansed by blood. There is a tremendous connection between the atonement of Christ and womanhood and the birth of a child. I'm immersed in water in both cases. There's the shedding of blood in both cases. And then there's a renewal of spirit in both cases. So that connection to women and water is also a connection between womanhood and atonement. Yeah, excellent stuff. I think all of these things, Bryce, are connected. So in the 29th chapter, He's going to come and meet her, and we have this rolling away of the stone from the well's mouth in the 10th verse. And I always like to teach this when I teach teenagers, Bryce, and I say in verse 11, kids, don't try this on the first date, right? He comes right up to her, and he plants one right on her. It says, Jacob kissed Rachel, lifted up his voice, and wept. And then Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebecca's son, and she ran and told her father. And so this is the introduction where he just runs up and – I don't know why I think that's so funny, but that's the introduction. And I always say, 
guys, we don't take everything in here literally. Like this is not a manual on how to date. I just, anyway. So it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and he embraced him. There was that symbol again. And he kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. Now, this is where we get into the tension. It's going to start right here in verse 16, where Laban has two daughters. And from Laban's perspective, he wants the older one to get married before the younger one. But Jacob doesn't know this. And then we read verse 17, that Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. That's what it says in the text, that Leah's eyes were tender. But what's interesting is Rachel was yifat toar v'yifat mare, which is literally translated as beauty, beauty, and beauty from vision. And so the translators took that and said, what do we do with this? She's beauty, beauty, and beauty from vision. And they basically translated it as she was beautiful and well-favored. And so Jacob loves her. And it says, I will serve seven years for her. And so Laban tricks the trickster. The supplanter is supplanted. There's some punning happening here where Jacob, who tricked previously, is now going to be tricked. And he marries Leah first because she's veiled and he doesn't see her face apparently in the text. In verse 25, he comes to Laban and says, wherefore then you beguiled me, you tricked me. And so in verse 26, Laban says, it's not right that I give you the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her a week, and then we will have another service, and you can marry Rachel. And so he does in verse 28, and then he marries Rachel. And then it says in verse 30, he went in unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet another seven years. And now this is the beginning of the tension between these two sisters as they're having a rivalry for the love of their husband. Now, as I read this through my modern lenses, I see the complexities and the challenges of trying to live plural marriage. For me, and we've talked about this a lot, I'm totally grateful we're not doing that. I'm so grateful that that practice has ended. But I see this as, well, obviously, you're going to have some challenges. This may be another way for the authors of the text to flesh out. This is probably not the ideal circumstance. I see this as a challenging circumstance, this marriage between Jacob, a great patriarch, and these two sisters. But what's interesting is I think hidden here is also a solution to family contentions and family problems. Notice that Jacob associated service and love. I will serve you seven years because I love her. Love and service go hand in hand. I love the fact that it says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. So there seems to be a hidden solution that those we love the most, we should serve the most. Jacob loved and served. I just find that connection fascinating. Absolutely. I, I love that. There's also this interesting phrase. If you go to verse 31 and 32, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bare a son and called his name Reuben. Now, I want to just read this about opening the womb. There's an interesting book by Phyllis Tribble, who's a Bible scholar, and she goes through very carefully through the text of the Hebrew Bible to see the implications of that verse, where it talks about God opening Leah's womb, and she sees that it's God who has the power of opening the womb. Which really brings up a major point that we ought to make right here. Do you remember why Noah's people were destroyed? 
It's because they were so violent with each other. In other words, they had lost the sanctity for life, and they were sending people out of this world callously. Now, look at what these two ideas are saying, that how we come into this world and how we go out of this world are big deals to God. And so that concept of God opening the womb seems to be suggesting that God cares deeply and he, God is involved very much so in the sanctity of life, receiving it and losing it. So you better be very careful and not meddle with his purposes in the receiving and losing of life. I just think that's so significant, Mike. It's a good message. And over and over again, God's love is tied to this image of the womb. We quote some stuff from Tribble where she goes through some really interesting texts in the Hebrew Bible. One of them is going to be a story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where God remembers the womb of Hannah, and she's loved. And because of this, Yahweh opens her womb. And so it's connected here with Rachel. It's connected with Leah in the story of the sisters that are struggling between each other. And then what's interesting is God's love in the text of the Hebrew Bible often is described as rachum and gracious. And rachum is a cognate of rechem, which is womb. In other words, the text of the Hebrew Bible repeatedly describes God in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's using these forms, merciful and gracious, to describe the creator. And it's a fixed formula. It's a portrait that belongs to not one historical period. In other words, God's love is tied to this image of the womb. I think that's beautiful. And Tribble goes on and on and gives many of the Psalms, many texts across many different time periods of the Hebrew Bible. And then she makes this powerful statement. She says, in many and various ways, the maternal metaphor, Rachum, witnesses to God as a compassionate, merciful, and loving being. Now, Bryce, you mentioned this, how in Moses the image of the veil and the image of the atonement and the image of birth, these three images are juxtaposed. And I think by the very use of that word for womb to describe God's compassion can open up all kinds of possibilities on how we view God. I'm going to say how we can view the temple, the bait. It's the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, bait. It literally, if I say bait or bait, it's house, but that second letter is a preposition in the language of Hebrew, and it means in oftentimes. Well, that bait connected to house, connecting to in, can also be connected to the concept of the first house, the first house that we came into in this life, and I'm talking about the womb. All of these ideas are related, and they're related in the concept of the womb being a house or a temple, my mother's body as a literal temple. And so when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, it's a lot of things. But one of the ideas is we must come home to our mother. And even that word to repent, shuv, means to turn. Um, but we're going through the flames and it's nailed, the vow, to the bait. We're coming back home to mother. And so God opened her womb is a lot deeper than sometimes we give it credit. Yep. Which I, is also going to be... Rachel's greatest concern is because she's barren. She can't give birth. Yeah. Her greatest burden is that her womb is not open. Yeah, it's, it's, yet. 
Not yet, but it will be. And so the story is told in this chapter and the next of the birth of these children. Reuben is born, and then Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Then in the 30th chapter, Rachel is concerned because she hasn't been able to give birth, but wanting to contribute, wanting to have children. And again, I think there's a little bit of that tension. Rachel says, look, I have a handmaid. Why don't you marry her? And Rachel gives Jacob Bilhah, and he marries Bilhah and then has two children from Bilhah, which is Dan and Nephtali. And And then then not to be outdone. Yeah, Yeah. Leah says, well, I can do that as well. Leah says, I have a handmaid. Her name is Zilpah. So why don't you take Zilpah to wife? And so Jacob marries Zilpah and then has two children kind of on Leah's team, which is Gad and Asher. And now Leah says, I'm going to have more children. And so Leah has Issachar and Zebulun and a daughter, Dinah. And then comes one of the great one-liners in the scriptures. In verse 22, it says, God remembered Rachel. And all her pain and all her anguish, God remembered Rachel. So we'll come back to that in just a minute. But now Rachel conceives and gives birth in verse 24 to Joseph. That brings the total to 11. Leah has given birth to six Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, gives birth to two, and Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, gives birth to two, and then Rachel gives birth to Joseph. That's 11. Now we've got one more, which is going to come after they leave and they go back home, and that's the last son, which is Benjamin. Yeah, and that's Genesis 35. Now Genesis 35 is going to be skipped in the curriculum of Come Follow Me, And so we'll talk about it in the next podcast. We'll talk about some of the stuff going on in Genesis 35. But if you want to just quickly go there, in Genesis 35, verse 18, it says, It came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she, meaning Rachel, called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is in Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, and that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And so Benjamin's going to come much later, and it's going to be a a great sorrow to Jacob to lose Rachel. And those are the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, his 12 sons, and he has a daughter named Dinah. Yeah. And every single child has a name, which is significant, and it's tied into the competition. Yeah, the competition. competing. Yeah, the, as these two sisters are competing for the affection of Jacob. So we have Reuben. He's the firstborn son of Jacob and Leah, and his name can mean Yahweh has seen my affliction. And if you look in the footnote, you can read that as, look, a son. So it shows the competition between the two sisters. And then Simeon is hearing, or Yahweh has heard that I was unloved. That's one interpretation. Then Levi can be read, or his name can mean, this time my husband will become attached to me. And Judah, or Yehuda is named because this time I will praise Yahweh. Then Dan is connected to the word judge. Now, really, I like the footnote 6a, where she says, God has heard my voice. This is Genesis 30, verse 6, and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. At the beginning of verse 6, Rachel says, God has judged me, and I think it's better translated to say that God has vindicated me. He's, he's stood up for me. Then 
When Naphtali is born, Rachel states, A fateful or a divine contest I waged with my sister. That's Genesis 30 verse 8. And it comes from this statement of tension between the sisters. And when Zilpah gives birth to Gad, Leah states, What luck! It's translated in the King James as a troop cometh, but the bait preposition before God, it said, but God, and it can literally mean in fortune or what luck. And so it's really a beautiful phrase talking about the good fortune and having this child. Then in Genesis 30, 11, when Asher is born, Leah states, what fortune? And it's kind of the same concept. It's be-ashri. And that's really beautiful. You've got the name, Asher, but it's to me, and it's in this fortune or in this blessing. This is the same use of blessed that we're going to read later in the Psalms and Proverbs about being blessed. And so it's like this, in this blessing, I'm so blessed or I'm so fortunate. And so when Leah gives birth to Issachar, she exclaims, God has given me my reward. And when Zebulun is born, Leah states, God has endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons, and she called his name Zebulun. And another way to read it is, God has given me a choice gift. And that word for gift, which is translated as dowry in, in the King James, is Zebed. And so it's Zebedni because it's to me. And it's related to the word Yizbeleni. And Yizbeleni is what's translated as dwell with me. But another way to read this is will exalt me. My husband will exalt me. Now, Sweeney notes that no pun is uttered when Leah's daughter Dinah is born. But then when Joseph is born, his mother states, God has taken away my disgrace and may Yahweh add another son for me. And so... Joseph can be being added to, having things added to. In Genesis 30, 23, where she says, God has taken away my reproach. It's Asaf Elohim is how it reads. And that word for Asaf, that's going to be Joseph's name. And Asaf can mean to gather, to receive, to remove, but also to assemble. And so we take that word Asaf, and in the next verse, Genesis 30, verse 24, we read, that she called his name Joseph, and in the Hebrew it's Yosef, and it's because we have this adding, add to me another son. So it's like a triple pun on Joseph's name. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. They had geographic designations where they were to inherit the land, and typically when we talk about it, we talk about Israel's to the north, Judah's to the south, and what's interesting is Uh, When we talk about Judah to the south, we also have Benjamin, but other people came from other tribes to live in Judah, especially as we read the Book of Mormon and we read that Lehi came from Manasseh. So we know that there were, after the, the scattering in 721 BC, that there were individuals that came from the north to the south to live. And this actually bears out in the archaeological record. Many archaeologists have gone and seen that there was a big increase in population in the southern kingdom after 721 as the Assyrians took people from the north people in the north moved to the southern kingdom to live, and that's why there was an increase in population. So Lehi's ancestors were part of that group. Yeah. And now, as we move forward, those 12 sons are now going to receive the covenant, and we're going to move forward, and we're going to watch the covenant and the competition among those 12 sons. But I want to go back to that phrase, God 
remembered Rachel. Faith in God means faith in his timing and trusting that there is a reason and a purpose why sometimes blessings are withheld. Hannah wanted so very much a son. Rachel so very much wanted a son. And I know many of you listening are craving righteous blessings and wondering why God is withholding a righteous blessing, whether that's a spouse or a child or some circumstance in your life. Uh, My desires are righteous, Lord. Why am I not being given this blessing? And we have to remember this verse, that in God's economy, in the overall scheme of things, those blessings will come in a time when he knows what is best. I leave the world my witness that we worship a God of three scoops of ice cream. Years ago, I had to immunize my daughter. They gave her three shots, and she looked at me with absolute betrayal in her eyes. How could you do this, Dad? I thought you loved me. And the reality is, that's exactly why I was doing it. I believed that that was for her best interest, that what was happening was a blessing to her, something she needed protection against. And it was an act of love, but she didn't understand that. So what do you think I did when we left the doctor's office that day? We went right to the ice cream parlor. She had three shots. And so I went out and bought her three enormous scoops of ice cream. One of them was bubblegum, her absolute favorite. Now, she didn't remember the shots. She remembered the scoops of ice cream. That is our Heavenly Father. Of Him, I testify that somewhere along the way, after the needed but sometimes painful necessary moments of mortality, where we have looked up at him with betrayal in our eyes saying, why are you doing this to me, Heavenly Father? Why am I going through this experience? I thought you loved me. This is Joseph in Liberty Jail where he pounds his fist and says, O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? And when we have those moments... I don't think he could possibly explain to us with our limited information why he felt that that was best. But what I do know is that God will remember Rachel. God will remember Hannah. Hannah, who yearned so much for a son, ended up with not just one, but many. Rachel will be remembered. He will remember you. Every righteous blessing we desire will in his due time be ours. But faith in God means faith in his timing and trusting that he will grant me a blessing when he knows it's best for me. With all my soul, I say to you who are yearning for a a righteous blessing, who are painfully looking up at God and saying, why? Why can't I have this really good thing that I'm asking for? I would ask you to memorize those simple words, God remembered Rachel. And look forward to the day when he takes you out for three scoops of ice cream. When you obtain his blessing, it will not be the painful shots that you remember. It will be the three scoops of ice cream. Yeah. 
I think Genesis 30 verse 22 is a powerful verse, and I think it's not just here. There are so many places in the Bible where we read how God will do his work, and a lot of times it is connected to a person being born. Even when we get into the New Testament narrative, I mean, the Son of God being born and how that changed the world. And I really do see this, Bryce, as every time a baby is born, it's a message from heaven that there's hope, that there's something to look forward to. Now, I will say, after Joseph is born, Jacob approaches Laban and says, pay me my wages so that I can go. And then there's this discussion about how long I've served you and let's come up with an arrangement. And then the rest of the verses in the 30th chapter are a little bit enigmatic. I mean, what's going on with these speckled and these spotted animals? And so I think the best way I like to describe it is that this is a contest between the men. Like we've had contests between the sisters. Now there's this contest between Jacob and Laban. And so a lot of this is connected to fertility and things of the earth, the speckled and spotted animals, rods of green poplar, hazel and chestnut trees, rods and watering troughs. What's going on? The general idea is that Jacob's animals are going to be more fertile than Laban's. This is a clear sign that Jehovah is approving of Jacob in this context. And so to someone that lived in the ancient Near East, your animals producing more would be a sure sign that God's favor was with you. And if you go to the final verse of Genesis 30, verse 43, the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle, maidservants and men servants, and camels and asses. Jacob is rich. And so then the Lord commands him to leave. This is verse 3 of Genesis 31. The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with you. Now, it's a little bit enigmatic, so I'm just going to call this out. Verse 3 says it's the Lord. Verse 11 says it's the angel of God. Verse 13 says, I am the God of Bethel. Now, some people look at this as three different visionary experiences. I'm just going to sit in this complexity and say, I see this as one visionary experience, and there's multiple things happening here, and I'm just going to say, yes, it's complex and it doesn't make sense. That's going to happen not just here, but in many places where God is speaking and then it transfers over to, no, it's an angel speaking and just know this is happening. But the idea is that he's commanded by God to go and to leave. And so he comes to his wives and he tells them, he's like, we've got to go. And their response, verse 14, is significant. Rachel and Leah answered and said, is there any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him as strangers? For he has sold us and he has quite devoured our money. Now, if that's true, Mike, that's a commentary on the contention of Laban's house. And again, the Lord seems to be pointing out, these are the things we need to focus on. We need to get family right. To the best of our ability, we've got to focus on those relationships. Yeah, I think that's clear there. And that phrase where they say he's ate our silver or he's devoured our money is going to be connected to verse 19. Rachel steals her father's images, and they're going to be called household gods. They're going to have different names. The word in the text is going to be teraphim, and the Greek translators that were in the third century, they took this, and they saw this as idols. And so we give you the translation on the fourth page of the show notes. 
And the Greeks are going to look at these as idols, but I think the teraphim or the household gods are probably more complex than this. And so if this question comes up in a class or if your kids ask you, you know, what's going on with these images? Because what happens is Laban's going to overtake them in verse 25, and then he's going to come and say, you know, where are these images? And he's going to search for them, and Rachel's going to sit on them. It says in the 32nd verse that Jacob doesn't know that she stole the images or these household gods, and Laban went in unto Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tent, but he didn't find him, and he's looking everywhere. And the reason why he can't find him is because, verse 34, Rachel's sitting on them and says in verse 35, I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me, and he searched, but found not the images. And so this whole chapter is swirling around in this image of these teraphim that are lost, and Jacob wants them, and what is this? And so there's a lot of ink spilled on this, and I don't know what this is, but there's some interesting possibilities. One of them is that these images were tied in the legal rights of inheritance, that these teraphim were connected to these women and their claim for inheritance, which Laban had denied them. Laban was treating them the way he was treating Jacob, which brings back to what Bryce is saying, like fix what's in your family. Another connection is that these were images. These were images that represented gods. And we're back to this complexity of the polytheistic background that the worldview of the patriarchs might have been a little bit different than the worldview that we have, whatever that may mean. Nahum Sarna suggests that perhaps Rachel took them because she believed that if she had them, the power of the gods would be with her so that Laban could not detect their escape. Now, later, God is going to come to Jacob and say, we've got to get rid of these idols. And so, We'll get to that later because that's not in this podcast, but that command by God to Jacob may be related to this passage. They bury them. Yeah, they they, they bury them. Jacob will go out and bury them. Yeah. So when Jacob gets upset at Laban searching for them, and he kind of lays into Jacob and says, wait a minute, why are you doing this? And he lays out a grievance against Jacob, and here's how you've treated me, and here's what I've done, and you've changed my wages 10 times. And I'd like to think that at this moment, a light went on in Laban's head, and he says, you know what? You're right. I haven't treated you well. Let's make a peace treaty. Let's let's reconcile. We got to fix this. We've got to fix this. So I love that it's Laban's idea. And Laban says to him, verse 44, now therefore come thou, let us make a covenant, I and thou, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. And so they take some stones and they build a pillar and each one of them swears an oath. And I think Jacob articulates well what they both were intending to do. So in verse 52, Jacob says, This heap be a witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. In other words, this pillar stands as a witness that you and I are not going to hurt each other anymore. And I think that's such a beautiful moment where, yes, Laban has hurt Jacob, and Jacob hurt Laban. 
And let's stop doing that. And let's build a monument to our commitment to not hurt each other. And I would invite all of us to ponder this pillar and let there be a modern day pillar that says in our hearts, you know what? I've said some harsh things to this person over there. And maybe it's because they said some harsh things to you. But let's build a pillar that says, let's stop harming each other. Let's stop hurting each other. If husbands and wives could build a pillar and say, I'm not going to hurt you anymore. I think that is such a significant ending to this part of the story. Can we sign an agreement or can we cut a covenant? Can we build a pillar and make a promise that we're not going to hurt each other anymore? You know, it's interesting, Bryce, is this is also the temple. I mean, let's look at the sequence. Number one, there's a historical overview. Hey, this is where we are. Think of the temple. Number two, there's a proposal of a covenant. Number three, we create a heap of stones. I'm going to call that an altar. Number four, we make the covenant. Number five, they sacrifice the animal. Number six, there's a feast, including bread. And my take on the temple today is the feast part of the temple experience we do in church. And that's coming out of Christianity. But in the ancient Israelite temple, the feast portion was in the temple. And then the final part, the blessing. Here's your blessing. And notice, it doesn't say it, but it kind of does. Look in the very last verse. Early in the morning, Laban rose up and he kissed his sons and his daughters and he blessed them. I'm going to call that kiss an embrace. Yep. Adding to Mike's list you can't participate in this if you have unkind feelings towards the other people. You can't come to the heap and participate with unkind feelings in your heart. You've got to take care of that. And so it ends with that embrace. It ends with a kiss and an embrace between Jacob's family and Laban's family. And that's a great way to end the story is we made our peace and we're not going to hurt each other. You go your way. I'll go my way. And let's be friends. In all this clunkiness, I see the temple once again. And I had a student say to me the other day, he's like, Brother Day, when do you not see the temple? (laughs) Anyway, okay. So now we're going into the 32nd chapter. Now he's got to deal with one more person. He's made his pace with his father-in-law, but he has to reconcile with his brother. And so now he's preparing to face Esau. In verse 14 of chapter 32, he's going to offer Esau 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camel with their colts, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. That, in that culture, was a significant offering He calls it his presence. So Jacob is going to really reach out to reconcile with his brother. He's worried about what his brother is still going to do to him. Yeah. And so it even says that in the seventh verse, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And so in this worry, he's going to cry out. He offers this prayer in the ninth verse. I I think this prayer is beautiful. It's actually verses 9 through 12. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which sets unto me, return to thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. And I fear him, lest he will come and smite me, and the mother with my children. And thou sayest, 
I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Which I think is so significant, Mike, that he reached out to heaven and asked for help with a strained relationship. Beautiful. Help me reconcile with my brother. And so verse 24, as he was left alone, he's going to wrestle an ish or a man. That's what the text says. The text is going to say that he's going to wrestle a man. And it's kind of confusing because at the conclusion of the wrestling, go to verse 30, Jacob is going to call the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And so Brutler and Berlin write this. They say that this is probably the most enigmatic passage in the Bible. These are their words. The fateful encounter at the Yabok is the best known episode in the life of Jacob, but it is surely the most enigmatic. And I would agree with Brettler in Berlin and say, I think there's probably some editing that took place and we're missing a big part of it. And I think one of the big things that we can take from this story of this wrestle is that whatever was written down on the brass plates... I think Enos, in his story, Enos, who is a son of Jacob, his experience and the way he textualized it in the Book of Mormon, to me, is going to shed a lot of light on this, isn't it? Yeah. And as I read the story of Enos, I can imagine the translators of the Bible are struggling with this concept about wrestling with God. But Enos presents his struggle. Let me throw out some of the words that Enos uses. He says, I will tell you of the wrestle which I had with God. He hungered, he cried, mighty prayer, supplication all the day long. Even when the night came, he poured out his whole soul. He struggled in the spirit. And then he says, many long strugglings. He labored, and this was the desire which I desired of him. If you look at prayer, if you understand that sometimes we go to Heavenly Father and we say, Father, this is what I want you to give me. We quite often offer up the desires of our hearts. This is what I think is best for me. But the Lord often comes back with what we need. This is what I want to give you, says God. So there's a little bit of a tension where I'm saying, Heavenly Father, this is what I want you to give me. And then Heavenly Father's saying, but this is what I want to give you. And there's a little bit of a tension there. And you can see that wrestle. And sometimes we try to convince God to change his mind and give me the thing that I want. Now, I'm going to do this reverently because I don't want to make Jesus like us in that sense, but there's this beautiful moment in Gethsemane where you kind of see this tension with the Savior. He wrestles with the Father and says, if thou be willing, take this cup away from me. I don't want to do this. He's asking for what he wants. Nevertheless, thy will be done. And then an angel comes as if to say, son, this is not what's going to happen. I'm not going to take the cup away. And then there's a beautiful second prayer where he says, if this cup isn't going to be taken away, then I'm going to drink it. And he's almost as if he says, but help me, bless me to drink it. And there is this great moment at the end of our wrestles where quite often we say, all right, Heavenly Father. Give me what you want to give me, but give me a blessing so that I can do it. 
Let me share a couple of examples. It's the mother whose baby cries all night. And she's pleading, Heavenly Father, help my baby to sleep. In other words, we ask, change my circumstances. And then she realizes, maybe changing my circumstances isn't what God wants to give me. And so her second prayer is, change me. So maybe her second prayer is, Lord, I'd really like my son to be able to sleep tonight. Would you bless him to sleep tonight? But if he doesn't sleep tonight, would you fill me with love for him tomorrow? Because I'm going to be cranky and sleepy and I might lose my temper with him. Would you change me so that I love him? I think that's the wrestle that Jacob says he lost. And it's not a loss. It's a, an acknowledgement. It's an acceptance that what God wants from me is better than what I wanted. I wanted to change my circumstances. And God wants to change me. It's like the Jaredites, where I think the one request would have been, stop blowing the wind. Stop blowing the winds that's causing the fierce storm that's beating against my boat. And the Lord says, what do you want me to do for the boat? And finally, we realize, maybe I shouldn't be praying so much for the wind to stop and change my circumstance as much as I should be praying for the boat and the help that I need to be changed. So at the very end of this beautiful moment, Jacob cries out and says, I won't let you go until you give me a blessing. And so Jacob asks for a blessing. And I think that's appropriate to say, all right, Heavenly Father, I'll give up. Give me the cup. I'll drink it. But please help me. And so that, I think, is a better picture of the wrestle that Jacob was having as it's portrayed in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I think the Book of Mormon really hits at home. I do want to point out that the word for wrestle, abak, and the word for embrace, chabak, is a pun. And so the author of Genesis is doing some wordplay with the idea of Jacob being a usurper or a heel grabber, and the word for wrestle and the word for embrace. And so there's a lot going on in here underneath the text that's related to this embrace. And then he gets a name change in verse 28, where his name is changed from Yaakov to Yisrael. And we think, and there's a lot of ways to read this, but we see this as a theophoric name, meaning that it has the name of God within it. And it probably is related to what's called the imperfect form of the verb, he will prevail. And if we take that verb for he will prevail and we turn it into adjustive, and adjustive is essentially a third person imperative. If you've ever heard the phrase, let them eat cake, that's adjustive. And so we take that Joseph for he will prevail and it turns into Yisra. And so what do you have? he will prevail or let it prevail. And so we have Yisra and then we connect it to El and it can be read as let God prevail or let God continually strive. And so as President Nelson has talked about, the idea of Israel is this surrender to God that he will prevail. Now there's lots of other ways to read this name, but I like that in the sense of as children of Israel, we're inviting God into our life. 
to prevail with us. And so the sons of Jacob are going to be called the sons of Israel. And this idea of the embrace, I mean, Matt Bowen's stuff is just excellent. And the wordplay happening here, I love what he says. He says in the biblical account, the word embraced constitutes a wordplay on the name Jacob. Similar wordplay on Jacob in terms of embrace can be found in Genesis 29, 13 and 48, 10. And it's similar to the wordplay on the word for wrestle and Jacob. And so this wordplay is a sublime pun on Jacob that emphasizes his transformation from his former identity. You see, Jacob is no longer a heel grabber or a usurper, but he is now the embraced one or the one who has been atoned. This pun confirms what Hugh Nibley suggests that, quote, the word conventionally translated as wrestled can also mean embraced, the one who is embraced. So if you're one of those people that you want to go a little bit deeper and look a little bit more into the words, we're going to reference a ton of stuff in the show notes from Matt Bowen, who wrote a great article on this. I think that's a really powerful message. Yeah. And when we bury our weapons of rebellion, when we bury our natural man in the waters of baptism, we get a new name. In the sacrament, it says that we are willing to take upon us the name of Christ. And then when we go into the temple, we receive that name. And so the same process is happening to us as Jacob. If you will yield to God, if you will give up the resistance and yield to what God is trying to have you do, he will put his name on you and he will change your name. So pay attention to that sacrament prayer. And then go back to the temple, and the Lord is putting a new name on you. It's his name, because you are now his child, born of him through his water and his shedding of blood and his spirit. That's the image I really want to leave, is this image of the embrace in the 33rd chapter. Let's read it. Starting in verse 1. Jacob lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. Now you can imagine the fear that he might have. Verse 3, he passed over before them, meaning his family, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. I want to end today on that image and superimpose it with the image of Joseph, which we'll talk about later and the image of Enoch and his city, and also the temple. This is an approach to God and fixing the things that are broken in our lives. And I bear testimony that these archetypes have meaning in our life, and they can be applied no matter what your religious persuasion is. And find a way to fix the family. Find a way to wrestle through the things that are difficult, and in your own way, approach God. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my challenge to myself and to everyone who is, is to go to the temple and to mend broken things. And as we do this, we feel the grace of God in our life. We feel his power, and we know we are doing his will. And I love what Esau calls Jacob. Someday I'd like to know the story of how Esau got to this point. Because Esau runs, embraces him, and then in verse 9 he says, I have enough, my brother. That's reconciliation. That's beautiful. It's my brother. Now, do you remember the last time we saw Esau, he was telling his dad, isn't he rightfully called Jacob the usurper? He stole my blessing and he wanted to kill him. And now he says, my brother. 
That's how this story ends. And I don't know how Esau got to this moment, because we've only been told Jacob's story, but the two of them coming together after hostility and anger and years apart, now we have that embrace. And we come together and we're brothers again. And that is the symbol of what needs to happen in all of our strained relationships, in all of our families. And it's also the symbol of what needs to happen with God. Like Mike says, the whole journey of the temple is to change my behavior so that I can embrace God and be embraced by God. The purpose of temple covenants is to get me to the point where God and I embrace And may I suggest one of the ways we get there is by embracing the people in our innermost circles and reconciling. He made peace with his father-in-law. He made peace with an estranged brother. I sure hope his wives made peace with each other and they became a family, Israel, and God prevailed. We've come full circle. And with that, We're going to close out. We will see you next time when we cover Genesis 37 through 41, the descent of Joseph into Egypt. Thank you for sharing your time with us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.